This is episode number 43 with Survivor of Flight 1549 that went down in the Hudson River, Valley Collins. Hey everyone and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Buckle and fasten up your seatbelts because the story you're about to hear is going to absolutely blow your mind. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the major motion picture, Sully, about the plane crash that occurred on January 15, 2009 that went down in the Hudson River in New York City. Well, today I bring you one of the 155 survivors from that flight who has spent years speaking to audiences telling her story. Valley Collins told me right away that I was very wrong that no, three minutes does not go by quickly. Not when you think you're not going to make it out alive. In this interview, Valley talks about the moment the bird struck the plane, the last text she sent before the plane went down, which was unbelievable, what happened when the plane hit the water, and the lessons she learned from the incident. Guys, before getting into this episode, I want you to share this with a friend. I'm telling you right now that this might be the most moving episode I've ever done, and it's going to be a game changer for you. Not only because it's an amazing story, but because Valley is such an inspiring woman who lives differently now because of the experience that she's gone through. I'm pumped for you guys to listen to this. Make sure you, when you're listening, to take a screenshot of it and tag me and Valley on your Instagram stories at carrier underscore best you and at Valley Collins, V-A-L-L-I-E-C-O-L-O-I-N-S. So let us know your favorite part. On this show, my guests and I talk a lot about goal setting and how to achieve those goals. One of my current big goals from July 15th to September 15th is to increase my ratings and reviews from 60 to 150. I want you all to continue to be a part of this and join in with me to help me achieve this. So this week's review of the week comes from Whitney Phillips, who says, I give it an 11 out of 10. Nick is always so upbeat and positive. It's hard not to want to be more like him. His messages are always so inspirational and eye-opening. His podcast is a must-listen. Thanks so much for the amazing review, Whitney. Make sure you guys scroll to the bottom of the Apple Podcast app or go to iTunes and leave a quick rating and review for a chance to be shouted out on the next week's episode. But for now, it's time. Fasten your seatbelts, everyone. Embrace for impact because Valley Collins is about to take you on the ride of this infamous plane crash. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Today, we've got a super inspiring lady today, Valley Collins. I appreciate you joining me today, Valley. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So Valley was a passenger on flight 1549, which on January 15, 2009, went down in the Hudson River, which you guys probably know from the movie Sully. Um, so we're going to get so, I'm just so excited to de- dive deep into that story. Um, already seen some good stuff that you've uh, talked about in the past and just uh, excited to dive even deeper into that. But let's go ahead and jump right into it, Valley. Uh, I want to get right into the story. Basically, when... Um, when was the first moment that you guys knew something was wrong? About 90 seconds after takeoff, between 90 seconds and two minutes at an altitude of almost 3,000 feet, not quite 3,000 feet, we heard this boom and the, the plane dropped, not a little bit, but not, not a lot, but just a little bit. But that, that was the point where I knew, okay, something's not right here. Okay. Did you think like that it was at all like severe? Like, did you think, like, oh my gosh, like, I'm actually in great danger? Or was it just like, huh, I've never heard that before. Like, maybe, hopefully it's nothing. Well, when I when I heard that noise, the, the, I was sitting on an aisle seat on the last row of the airplane. And there was no one in the middle seat, a gentleman at the window. And I just looked at him and said, what was that? And he had been looking out the window and he said, it was birds. 
And so I was kind of like, okay. And I know that bird strikes happen. A lot of times you'll, you know, it'll, they'll take out one engine, you fly, fly back, land, no problem. But about that time to my left, he was sitting to my right, uh, to my left, I see smoke and I smell this really awful, awful odor. And years ago, I had had a pilot tell me on a flight that was very turbulent. He knew I was nervous. He leaned over. But years ago, I had a pilot tell me, you know, don't worry about turbulence. Up front in the cockpit, all we worry about are birds and fire. So I thought, great, we've got both birds and fire. So at this point, I knew, okay, this is not a good situation. And also, at this point, let's say another 15 seconds have gone by. And I, 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 I fly a lot. I'm a frequent flyer. I travel a lot. And at that point, I realized, you know, we're not climbing and I don't hear any engine noise. And, you know, usually in the first, what, four or five minutes of a flight, you know, it's it's full engines. You're climbing. You're you're going up, up, up. Your altitude's increasing. And that wasn't that wasn't happening. So pretty quick, I was aware that this was a dire situation. Okay. And so were a lot of people, did a lot of people have that awareness? And like, was there a lot of like frantic conversation going back and forth? No, not really. Um, I think a lot of it depended on where you were sitting on the aircraft. You know, since I was in the last row, I was behind the engines. So it was real clear to me when the engines were no longer running, let's say versus someone who's sitting up on the first row, who's a fair distance away from those engines. So in talking to the passengers over a year, I think we all over the years, we all had various levels of awareness and, and consciousness about what was going on. I mean, some people had fallen asleep before takeoff, like you do on flights, and were just oblivious at first. So it just, it kind of depended on where you were on on the plane and just how in tune you are. You know, some people had headphones on or reading their book, and there was not at that moment, there was not a sense of panic or pandemonium. It, it was actually eerily quiet. Because I think a lot of people that were noticing, like, well, this is weird. That's not normal, kind of looking around. But it wasn't as if we were falling from the sky in a nosedive and everyone was screaming. It wasn't that type of sensation. Okay. And so what period of time was the gap between kind of like this 90 seconds to two minute period to when the captain came on over the intercom? Okay. Well, from the time the birds hit to the time we hit the river was three and a half minutes. Right. Schlumberger came on the PA system about 90 seconds before we hit the river. So probably from that first hit to when he came on was about two minutes. And all he said was, this is the captain, brace for impact. This whole thing just happened so fast. I can't even like imagine. You don't even necessarily like have the time to know what's going through your head. It's just like so crazy. Um, no, so- well, I'll disagree with you there. I'll disagree okay. with you there. Actually, three and a half minutes is a long time. You sit and look at your watch for three and a half minutes and you think, I'm dying. This is it. It's not like a car wreck that hits you out of the blue and you don't know what happened. Three and a half minutes is a commercial break. You can go to the bathroom, pop a bag of popcorn. So when people say it just happened so fast, it really, it really didn't. You know, I would say, put set your watch on three and a half minutes and try to look somebody in the face eye to eye for three and a half minutes. It's a long time when you think it's your last three and a half minutes. Yeah. Okay. So was was the moment that he came on the intercom, like finally when everybody was like, oh, like, oh crap, something's right. actually going yeah. on. Okay. And so what, what was it, what was it like then? Was, was then everybody like, was it constant conversation? Were anybody moving around? Was everybody just kind of strapped in and silent? Like what's going on? 
Yeah, I mean, everybody's in their seats because we were in takeoff. You know, when you take off, everybody's in their seatbelts. Nobody's computers are out. Bags are put away. And I think that's one of the reasons we had so few injuries is because everyone was seated and they had their seatbelts on. At that point, the flight attendants, both in the front and the back, start chanting, you know, brace, brace, heads down, brace, brace, heads down. And that's when you, if you've ever looked at a safety card, which I'd encourage everyone to do in your mind, it's like, okay, time to bend over and put my arms underneath my thighs and fold into a sandwich like it shows you on the card. Wow. And, you know, I looked across the aisle. There were three ladies across the aisle from me, and I remember looking over at them, and there's a lot of praying going on. You know, no sound was coming out. You could see their mouths moving. But um, from where I was sitting at that point, I still you still didn't hear a lot of panic or pandemonium or anything. I think people were just trying to get focused on Bracing and 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 when when a when a captain says brace for impact, okay, wh- what what kind of impact? Like, what is this impact going to be, and just how bad is it going to be? And so the gentleman sitting next to me who had been looking out the window was still looking out the window. He told me he said, "Be ready, we're going in the water." So he was looking out and could tell that they had lined the plane up with. What was the Hudson River? I don't know. None of us knew that was the Hudson River. It was just this body of water. Right. So. Right. So you, you, talk, you talked about how it was a long three and a half minutes. So what is was going through your head? Is it just like a race of different things? Is it like how, what's going to happen when we land? Or is it like I'm definitely going to die? So these other thoughts are going in my head. What's exactly happening in those three and a half minutes up here? There's a couple of things going on. The first was my thought, I travel a lot and so did my husband and we didn't keep up with details like what airline, what flight number, what connection city. So my first thought was very pragmatic in that Steve doesn't know I'm on this plane. You know, it could take him a day, a week, a long, you know, hours, uh, who knows how to get confirmation that yes, she was on board. So I looked down at my feet and my purse was underneath the seat with my Blackberry telephone sticking out. So I pulled it out. I sent Steve a text message that just said, my flight is crashing, period. Now, I I joke, it had perfect punctuation and spelling, but I wanted him to know, yeah, I'm on board this. You know, he's going to hear about it. If it doesn't end well, I didn't want him to have questions of, did she make it on that plane? Is she stuck in traffic somewhere? You know, I wanted him to, and that was all that I could get typed out because my seatmate, he said, put that up, you're out of time. So I just sent that text and that's all it said. I'm I'm just speechless. Um, oh my gosh. He was too when he got. So, that, so that's the one thought. The first thought was, okay, I've got a task here. I've got to let him know. And then it was sadness. You know, I was... I was 37 years old. My children were nine, six, and four. They had so much life ahead of them. So I was very sad for all the things I was going to miss. You know, I'm not going to be there for high school graduation or weddings or hitting a home run. And who's going to plan their birthday parties? And so all I could think about selfishly was all this great part of their lives I'm going to miss. Now, there were other passengers on board that said literally they did that rewind on their life. You know, they started thinking back, re, you know, like you hear people say their life flashed before their eyes. A lot of people had that experience, but I had more of a, a sadness then coupled with, a, you know, I'm a person of faith. I knew I knew where I was headed. So there was a certain peace that came with that. You know, I remember saying, thinking to myself, well, this is your will, God, I accept it. I'm still not crazy about it, but I accept it. <laughs> 
Um, at that stage in my life, really the only close person family member that had ever died was one of my grandparents. My other three grandparents were alive. My parents were alive. My sister, my, and I just remember thinking, well, he'll be there waiting on me, you know? So those were kind of the, kind of three, three sets of feelings that are going, were going through my mind in those moments. And then when, when, when my seatmate said we're going in the water, then I kind of clicked back to that practical, okay, you know, airplane water landing, most likely what's going to happen is this plane's going to cartwheel and it's going to bust into a lot of pieces. So what I said to myself was, okay, if you're conscious, just swim to the light. Just try to swim to the light if you're conscious when we hit. And that was that was my plan. I'm just like, I'm like just sitting here about to say, I'm like, my body's like trembling thinking about it. It was crazy. Quite a ride. So what is your, did your husband get the text right away? Well, not exactly. Um, so the way that played out is when I boarded the airplane, I talked. I was talking to my little sister on the phone, and she had asked me when I was getting home, and I said, I'm going through Charlotte. I'll be home at 7. So that kind of going through Charlotte resonated with her. Well, when I sent Steve the text message, oddly enough, Steve was swimming at the gym, so he didn't have his phone with him. When my sister's at home, and she sees this come on the news, and it's just it doesn't even say in route to Charlotte yet, but she just innately knew I was on board. She just said, I knew my sister was on that. I could just feel it. And then when it said in route to Charlotte, she was even more convinced. So she calls Steve and leaves him a voicemail saying, what's Valley's flight number? I think she's on this plane that's crashed. So when he comes out of the gym, gets in the car, starts, you know, he's in sales, starts checking his voicemails. And he hears her voicemail, so he goes back into the gym where the treadmills are. And, of course, at this point, it's on every TV. And so he's looking at all the TVs, trying to process Shay's voicemail, and then the phone vibrates with my text that said, my flight's crashing. So that's when he knew for sure that I was on board. They still weren't talking survivors or number of survivors yet. Meantime, my sister has called my parents, who works together, and told them her suspicion Steve ends up calling my dad and confirming to him. So long story short, the four of them had about half an hour of knowing I was on board, but not knowing if I survived. So they had their own kind of level of trauma. Right. Right. Did, uh, like what, what is, what is your husband, what does he say that he was like thinking? Like when he get, when he gets this information, all of a sudden it's just like, it hits him like a ton of bricks, right? I mean, like all of a sudden he's swimming, all of a sudden he gets this rush of information that's just frantic that says, my plane is crashing. He sees it on this TV. Like what's going through his head? Well, he went into true, you know, operation mode, so to speak, true dad mode. He, our children were at home with the babysitter. So he called her immediately and said, do not turn on the TV do not answer the phone. Do not let the kids get on the computer because I think Valley's been in a plane crash. And if she's not coming home, I have to tell them. Like, they have to hear it from me. They can't hear it from anybody else but me. So he put them in lockdown, basically. That was his first, you know, his first reaction was, I got to take care of my children. This is could be really bad. I got to set my children up as well as I can in this horrible situation. So that was his immediate response. And then... um and then he he's driving home. He's, of course, trying to talk to my sister, talking to my parents. Well, then my company that I'm working for calls because the travel agent, travel agency gets like a alert or whatever that they had booked a customer on this flight that's now reported, you know, having 
landed in the river. So, so my company's calling Steve saying, I think, and he's like, I know, I know, you know, he's trying to get off the phone in the event that I might call. Um, so that's, that's what he did. Oh my gosh. All right. So well, let's go back to the, the incident, the plane hits the water mm-hmm. and then, and then what, like, what, what is, what, well, let's start with what is exactly are you, do you feel? Is it just like, I mean, yeah, just start. What does what does it feel like? It, it, you know, it we we hit the water at 160 miles an hour, which would be That's like it? landing on concrete at oh. 160 miles an hour, no wheels. So it was very rough and it was very violent. And my memory is that it just shook a lot. It was like somebody shaking your shoulders. But for what I had myself prepared for, when it hit and we seemingly stopped and I'm in one piece and the plane's in one piece, literally my first thought was, well, that wasn't that bad, you know, because I was, I was prepared for us to cartwheel and water come rushing in. And, you know, I mean, it, it was rough. I'm not going to say it was like a smooth, but compared to what it could have been and what I had myself mentally prepared for, it wasn't that terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you were expecting, like you said, to cartwheel and for it just kind of to explode and like maybe right. just swim towards the light. Right. Well, you're just expecting worst case scenario. So, how how quickly after the landing are everybody just like immediately able to start to move and and try to get out, or how what's the gap time there? Okay, yeah, pretty much. Um, what's funny? I'll tell a little joke on myself or a funny and embarrassing moment when we hit. And we seemingly stopped. I popped my head up and I looked at my seatmate and I told him, I said, "Open that window." <laughs> of course airplane windows don't open you know and he's kind of like uh was there a button here there's no way to do it. but my immediate thought was i gotta get out of here right. and, and i'm not gonna fit through an airplane window either <laughs> but you know you kind of lose so that point i'm sitting on the last row of the plane so 100 my closest exit is behind me okay. so i go to the galley and i'm the first passenger back there at this point other passengers get up but when i get to the rear galley the flight attendant is trying to crack open the left rear door. And I went even over trying to help her. I mean, it says exit and you want out. Well, we're not going to get that door open because the water pressure outside is a lot stronger than we are. Then she says, you know, we're in the water. And she said, you have two minutes, go to the wings. And she started moving towards the wings. More passengers came into the rear galley and they tried to get the right rear door open. It wouldn't open either. And this is really the point where I experienced my scariest moment. Even from scariest before we landed in the river, because the water in a matter of seconds went from my ankles to above my chest and it was 35 degree water and it was 22 degrees outside. So the cold is just something I can't really adequately, it was like needles in my entire body. And, and I'm standing in an airplane galley, you know, it's not very big. And I just thought, Lord, I do not want to drown. I mean, I really thought I was going to drown. And, and people at this point in the back of the plane are like me thinking, well, the closest exit is the back. So they're trying to come to the back. Well, we're not getting out the back. I'm 100% sure of that. I mean, the back is, is sinking. So that's when I just put up my arms and started saying, go to the wings, go to the wings, just to turn people around. But, you know, the atmosphere in the plane at this point was pretty chaotic. Uh, I get the question a lot, what do I think of the movie Sully? 
I think it's a great movie. I think they do a great job, except the evacuation scene in the movie was a lot more orderly than it was in real life. Uh, in real life, people were climbing, climbing, I mean, crying, screaming, climbing over seats. Some people were trying to get their luggage out of the overhead. You know, it was just, yeah. you just kind of, you just, <laughs> a like, lot of people just me? disconnected with what is the reality. Like, okay, it's time to get off. Let me get my suitcase. That's what I always do. Um, but it was pretty, pretty chaotic at that point. Okay, so you're at the scariest moment with the freezing water like rising up really quickly, and then you guys start moving towards the wings. Right. How soon then do you go from scariest moment to be like, I might actually live? Yeah, by the time – okay, so I was seated on row 26. Mm-hmm. The Over the wing exits rows 10 and 11. So probably around 15 or 16, I could see the light of day. You know, I could see people moving out of those exit doors. So time-wise, you know, I can't really tell you exactly. Maybe a minute, minute and a half, you know. But when I stepped out onto the wing, I came out on the right wing. And I'm I'm not one of the people you see way out on the wing because I was one of the last passengers out. So I'm really close to the fuselage of the plane. But when I stepped out on that wing, I thought, okay, I'm not dying. I'm not going to die today. I could see ferry boats approaching. There was, that was the first point where I felt like I had some control of my destiny. You know, when you're sitting in that airplane seat and somebody else up front is flying and you, you have no control. And that's what's scary for all of us as humans is lack of control. And when, you know, when I was in the galley with the water rushing in, if these people don't move forward, we're going to drown back here. So when I made it out of the wing, this is an incorrect statement, but when I made it to the wing, I looked left and I looked right and I thought, well, if I have to, I'll swim to that shore. <laughs> Michael Phelps could not have swam to that shore in that, in that temperature water, you know, but at least in my mind, I thought, okay, I've got a little control over my situation. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. You'd probably dive. Uh, you'd probably freeze to death before you could. Yeah, I think they say cardiac arrest would set in in 15 minutes in that kind of water. So you're not gonna you're not gonna make it very long. Yeah, but like you said, if you you the rationale was there, you also thought you could get out of a plane window. So <laughs> right, right. you you lose you lose some uh, you lose some connection there with reality. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when you guys when you guys got off the off the plane that day. Like what did you what do you do the rest of the day after something like that? Okay, so when we when we finally got off the plane, we I got out onto a ferry boat and a ferry boat that took me to Weehawken, New Jersey ferry terminal, and we were there for about two hours because they had to start processing us. They they huddled us up in this one little room. They gave gave us blankets. Um, they they put these body tags on us like these triage tags to kind of assess what level I mean they're the same kind of tags that they would put on a corpse you know there's different levels so that was a little surreal but they all had a barcode so they were trying to get a name associated with the barcode because the airlines overall because many of us went to New Jersey and many of us went to New York and different places in New York so you know the 155 were scattered so the main thing I mean especially so he wanted to know who, you know, is everyone accounted for? Because at that point, you still didn't know if everyone had survived. They had sent divers into the airplane, and the divers couldn't believe that there were no bodies there. So it took about two hours that I was at that ferry terminal. Um, You've got ambulances coming, first responders coming. Those of us that were in wet clothes had to get out of the wet clothes. So, like, I, Shelby was kind of funny. I was given a men's New York Waterways uniform, which was 
size 48 dicky pants and a triple XL sweater. I mean, <laughs> huge. <laughs> but it was dry and it was warm. And then they, they had to kind of assess those of us that were there who needed to go to a hospital and who didn't. You know, who was okay to go to like a Red Cross shelter and who needed to go to a hospital. And you've got to remember, I left everything on board the plane. So I had nothing, no phone, no ID, no money. Um, it was a really, when I look back on those moments, sitting in the ferry terminal on like a, like a bar stool type stool wrapped up, there are all these people I knew were there to help. You know, you've got police, Port Authority, firemen, residents from a local, um, from, from University of Hoboken are coming to help. I mean, it's kind of all hands on deck, but it was the most alone feeling. Even though I knew the people were there to help, I didn't know where I was going to spend the night. You know, no money, no ID, no phone. It's just this kind of a scary, it was an odd, it was an odd situation. But there were, we saw the best of humanity that day. I mean, literally the, the ferry boat captain, when I was on his boat, my sweater was so wet and I was so cold, I took it off because I thought I'd be warmer. And he gave me the shirt off his back. Um, I had a Port Authority worker who, would, I had to get out of, out of all my clothes and bag them up. He made sure my clothes made it to the hospital. So I was in Weehawken. This was a very long answer to your question, I realized. But I was there about two hours. And then I was taken to the University of Hoboken Medical Center. And I was processed there for a while. Because two hours after we came out of the water, my body temperature was still only about 92. So the hypothermia risk was there. Um, well, probably about 10 o'clock that night. We landed in the river at seven at 3.30, excuse me, in the afternoon. Probably about 10 o'clock that night. My good luck continued because Steve's first cousin lives five blocks from that hospital. So she came and got me and I spent the night with them. So what was the first point that you got, actually got to talk to like to your husband and kids again? Yeah, well, when I got on the ferry boat, okay. when I climbed up off the raft onto the ferry boat, I borrowed a man's phone because I remembered that I had sent Steve this text message. You know, yeah. so he's got to be freaking out. So I just borrowed the man's phone and called Steve and I said, honey, you know, it's me. I'm okay. And you know what he said? What? He said, call your mother. Uh. <laughs> my mother was hysterical. So I called my mother, you know, and I don't know what she said to me. But she said when she heard me say I'm wet and I'm cold, she said, I knew you knew enough. You'd be okay. Mm. So that's when I, t and then later, I guess, can't remember. When I got to the hospital, it was a lot of coordination because Steve's cousin lives in New Jersey, but I had no phone. At one point, they said they were going to send me to one hospital, and then they sent me to another one. So between Steve, his dad, his cousin, they're trying to triangulate where I'm actually going and when she could potentially come and get me. And, you know, I probably talked to him again from the hospital, but I don't really remember. I mean, reporters were calling the ER. I mean, it was crazy how fast the news media was all over everything, but... You know, I got to I got to their house probably 10 or so that night. And that's when I called Steve and we kind of developed a plan for the next day because I knew I would fly again, but I knew I wasn't flying home. So at this point, U.S. Airways had booked him a ticket up to New Jersey for the following morning. You know, he was going to come get me and drive me home. So we started talking about those logistics later that night, probably 10, 11 o'clock. This is nuts. This is not, I can't even, this is unbelievable. Um, so after this happens, you've been interviewed a number of times, probably like right after it and, you know, ever since, and you speak a lot and people ask you a ton of questions about the event and you're probably, probably sick and tired of hearing a lot of them. But 
Is there any question that you wish people asked you more about the particular event that you don't get asked very often? Mm. Good question. Is there a question I wish they asked me more? I think the question that I think to, to, could you go through something like this and you want to learn from it and you hope that someone else learns from it. And one of the learnings I talk about is just empathy for people that have mental issues. Um, so I think people having better asking more and better understanding about the mental impact of that type of traumatic experience, that type of life and death moment, that type of adrenaline rush, it affects you. Um, you know, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's a very real mental illness. And there's all level, different levels of it. And even for the passengers on board the flight, some people suffered with it a lot worse than I did. Some people didn't have as hard a time as I did. Kind of depended on where you were on the plane, what your level was of awareness, how soon, etc. So I think that's the, I try to take the stigma away from that because there's a lot of people that suffer from that for all different reasons, whether it's our veterans um, who have gone through extended type trauma or somebody that's been in an experience like mine, or maybe somebody that's just come in and their home's been broken into. And they just, there's a sense of, you know, violation you, that you feel violated in your own home and you don't trust. So I think that's probably the thing that, you know, initially people would come up to us, the passengers and say things like, you were on that flight. How cool was that? Well, the ending was cool, but the experience was not cool. But, but we had to realize we were sort of the good news story of the year. I mean, this is early 2009. Our country is in one of the worst economic crises it's been in in a long time. You know, it's kind of bad news everywhere. You're, we were, you know, in New York who had seen such terrible tragedy in 2001 to have this miracle kind of happen because it was pretty miraculous that we all survived. And so we were the good news story of the year. So people are so excited and you wanted to be excited and I was excited to be alive and I was very grateful, but I was still dealing with a lot of emotional trauma hurt. And that was, that's, and that's nobody's fault, but I'm just saying, I think if that's probably the question I would best like is, you know, how did it affect you long-term and it will always affect me. I mean, I don't think PTSD time helps, but it's never something that's going to completely go away where I'll tell people if I had broken my leg, I'd have been on crutches for six weeks in a cast and that leg would healed up and been as good as new. You know, it would have been the exact same leg as it was when I boarded the plane. But when you go through traumatic experiences, you never get that same brain back, if you will, that same perspective on life. I mean, I, you know, I had to go to counseling for a while and they even had to bring Steve in because there were parts of our relationship that were different because I was different. I was, in some ways, I think I'm better in some ways, I was worse than the lady that boarded that flight. But what everyone had to come to understand, including me, was that woman that boarded the flight was not going to ever be the same. You know, you're going to be changed when you go through something like that. Right. So what 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 advice can you give to people who go through that kind of a that kind of a traumatic event? Like, and what advice would you give to yourself, like right afterwards, having known and gone through what you've gone through now? I think the advice I would give is number one, and this is pretty textbook. I didn't realize it at the time, but PTSD, the symptoms of that don't show up immediately after an event. 
So, you know, the next couple of days, now granted, I didn't sleep that night. I couldn't eat. I lost a fair amount of weight. Maybe that's the adrenaline rush. But, you know, a couple of days later, I thought, I'm fine. I'm good. I'll go back to work next week. Everything. Then like three weeks in, all of a sudden, I just wasn't myself. Like I just, I couldn't put my finger on it. And it's not like I had a broken leg or I was running a fever or, you know, there wasn't an assignable, but I just didn't feel like me. I was, I should be so happy to be alive, but yet I felt so sad all the time. So the advice I would say is I had a great network of people around me that I could confide in. And one of those is my father-in-law and we went to lunch and, and he's the one that said, maybe you need to go talk to somebody. So I think my advice to people is when you're struggling with something mentally, there's no shame in going to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You know, if, if you think you have cancer, there's no shame in going to the doctor to get that treated. But there's this stigma in our country about mental health issues. And, you know, I had never been a person that needed that kind of help before. But I think um, just it's okay to go get some help. And, and it was nice to... A lot of the thoughts and things that were going around in my head, you know, Steve would have listened to me all day long. My family would have listened to me. But there's value in being able to just, for lack of a better term, throw those feelings up on an independent third party person that, mm -hmm. you know, at some point is not going to be a part of your life. And they're not going to go tell anybody else. And you can just get that out on them, get some counsel from them to help you move through. So that's the one. And the other thing I think is in if you don't get that help, if you think, oh, I got this, I can muscle through, pull myself, that trauma is going to come back around and bite you at some point. It might be five years, it might be 10 years, but you, you've got to address that stuff, you know, when it occurs. Yeah. So why do you think, why do you think that you were like, so sad? Like, you know, obviously the event itself is was nuts and it's crazy and like you have all the reasons to be super just kind of distraught. But do you think that like, you, you know, you mentioned how I should be super happy. I should be grateful to be alive at all these things, but I wasn't. Do you think like that idea in and of itself is what was like maybe keeping you down or what keeping you sad or like really what was it do you think that it took for you to start getting out of? Well, I think it's a compilation of things. I mean, some of it I think it's just straight brain chemistry that happens when you go through an adrenaline, you know, fight or flight type thing. And and again, that adrenaline rush, three and a half minutes doesn't sound like a long time, but it is a long time in that, um, especially with no control. You know, even soldiers in combat have a gun, so they feel like they have a sense of control. But in our situation, we had, we had none. So I think part of it is just the physiological piece of it. I think the other... Um, part of it of why I heard a great analogy one time and they said a tightrope walker is able to do what they do because they never look down. The tightrope walker never considers the other option of falling. They only consider making it to the other side. Well, for us, we were in a moment we looked down. So we became very clear on what the other option was. You know, I tell people, we all know we're going to die. Right? Nobody's getting out of this gig alive. Nobody thinks it's going to be today. And when you think it's today, that alters you. And so when it's not today, you think it's going to be today. It's not today. All your subsequent days, you keep looking for danger and everything. You don't trust that you're going to have tomorrow. Wow. Because you sat in a moment where you didn't think you would have tomorrow. So for a while, I didn't even want to put anything on my calendar. 
you know, why schedule a vacation? We probably won't live that long, you know? So again, I know it sounds really crazy, but that's part of what the sadness is that you lost the trust that you're going to have tomorrow because you really, honestly, I honestly, truly believe I would not have tomorrow. So that took a long time process. And, and like I said, it's for PTSD and, and most things, time is the best healer. You know, it does, time goes on. And that I would, you know, I could be driving down the interstate and eighteen wheeler goes. That eighteen wheeler is going to come over my lane and hit my car and kill me. That those are the kind of thoughts you have, which that could happen. But the likelihood of that happening, and there's the thing. But what happened in our plane was so unlikely. It was a one in eight billion chance, billion with a B, that mm-hmm. birds would knock out both engines of a jetliner. Like it just made no sense. And you know, and it's funny with PTSD too. Something I'd like people to understand is. You can have those symptoms come back with something not related at all to a plane. Mm-hmm. Like when the, when the, when the horrible, um, you know, the, the school shootings up in, was it in Connecticut? No, all those young children. Well, that kind of threw me back into that because those parents were doing something they deemed safe. They were taking their kids to school. We were just getting on a flight home and all of a sudden it wasn't safe. So in my brain it pops up like, Ooh, this should be safe, but it's probably not. You can't trust things that are supposed to be safe. Again, I know that sounds crazy, but that's the part that I think people, you know, need to understand. And that's what I tell people is just none of us are going to need to be experts on every aspect of mental health, and mental issues. But I think just recognize that somebody may look just fine on the outside, but you don't know what they're wrestling with on the inside. And just give them a little extra empathy, especially for something you maybe don't personally understand. So when you get thrown back into that, like the PTSD from an event that, especially from an event that has kind of nothing to do with a plane or anything like that, yeah. what, what, what do you start to do to help yourself kind of get out of that moment of, of thought? Mode, yeah. Because even, even things like chaos, you know, something's chaotic and out of my control. I mean, my son one time had a 10-year-old a summer party with a bunch of 10-year-old boys and I felt myself about to come unglued and I realized it because it was so chaotic and I could not control it. And as silly as it sounds, deep breathing helps a lot. Literally 10 slow breaths in, 10 slow breaths out, because physiologically that will bring your heart rate down. You know, a panic attack is your heart rate, you know, accelerating up too high and getting out. Well, so when I get in those moments, I, you know, try to redirect my brain in one aspect. But the second is literally just try to slow my breathing down to physically calm myself down. Hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what do you do differently now, maybe on like a daily basis that you wouldn't have done that way if the accident had never happened? If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I'm human. I slip, I mess up, but I really try not to sweat the small stuff. There are so many little things in life that we tend to get our blood pressure up over, whether it's somebody cutting us off on the on-ramp on the highway or, you know, my dog chewing up my favorite pair of shoes, my son not making up his bed. I mean, you know, just little things that tend to get under our skin and tend, I really try not to let those things bother me. And when I start to let them bother me, I'm like, "Mm, you know what, Valley, in the grand scheme of life, that's not that big of a deal. There are really few things that we encounter that are worth raising our blood pressure up over. And I just recognize, I mean, I'm so, I, I, I mentally acknowledge every day how thankful I am for that day. 
I mean, every day is a lucky day. Yeah. So you just have a lot more like clarity and perspective. Uh-huh. Like- perspective. That is for sure. Perspective. I definitely, and you, and you don't, I don't, I don't leave any, my relationships with my friends and my family. They all know I love them. They, even if we get sideways on something, I'm going to work it out. I'm not going to leave anything unsaid or undone or let something fester. Even if it's a relationship, you decide, you know what, it's time for us to part ways. You know, let's just agree to disagree. And, you know, maybe we don't run in the same circles. And that happens in life. You know, you you have friends and people in your life for seasons and sometimes those seasons in. But rather than letting something harbor negatively, I don't do that anymore. Right. Not that I did a lot of that before, but I just try to make sure all my relationships are as healthy as they can be. Right. So those are a couple of definitely great lessons that you learned from it. You you do like a, like we talked about a lot of uh, speaking engagements now, and of course you share your story and and go through everything that a lot of what we discussed. But what are the lessons and the messages that you wish to communicate with others? Is things like that, like have a little bit of perspective. Don't let relationships. Um, stay in a negative spot? Like what are some of those messages that you try to communicate with others? Yeah. I tell people there's, there's five key ones. One is just about being kind, just be kind to other people. You know, after it was all over, I remember thinking, did the bus driver from the terminal to the, from the rental car lot to the terminal, would he have thought of me as a kind person? Did I smile at the gate agent? Was I friendly to my seatmate? So, you know, as we walk through our day-to-day life, we don't know who the other person is. We'll have that very last interaction. It might be Steve that I kiss goodnight, but it may be a drive-through worker at Chick-fil-A that hands me a Diet Coke. So simply just being kind. Um, that's where my Ralph Waldo Emerson quote comes in. He says, you can never do a kindness too soon, for you never know how soon it may be too late. Mm-hmm. Empathy is the other one. Empathy is the other learning, which I've already talked about from a mental health standpoint. The third one is staying physically fit to the best of your ability, because you may be in a situation where physically you've got to be able to save your own life or help out a friend or family member or help out a stranger. The yeah, I, don't one even, I don't even, sorry to stop you. I don't even think like I've ever thought about physical fitness in the sense of like life or death when like, obviously like yeah. back in the day, that's all kind of all it was. But I think that's a really, if you can't motivate yourself to be physically fit just to be physically fit then like that's a that's another <laughs> great way to get motivated yeah because i mean when we were sitting on the raft to get up on the deck of the ferry boat was probably 12 to 15 feet above our heads and it was like a grid like a rubber grid it wasn't even a ladder and a lot of passengers just physically struggled being able to climb out you know and i was able to and i was able to help a little girl get up so just being you know physically where you can get out an exit door of an airplane um, so that's practical perspective. We've already, we've already talked about not sweating the small stuff and making those relationships. And then the last one is just time, taking time to live a little bit every day, whatever that means to you. If it's going on a run for me, playing a tennis match, even if I lose, that was my living moment for that day. Reading a book, throwing balls with your child in the yard, watching the game. I tell people, nobody on our plane in that three and a half minutes was worried about how many unanswered emails we had, how much money was in our checking account, whether our yard's remote. We were worried about that time we were going to miss with the people that we love. So just take time to live somehow a little bit every day and just, you know, mentally acknowledge it. Like, okay, here's my living moment for today. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So obviously your life changed in so many different ways after this event. 
but you, your career changed too, right? So, I yeah. mean, basically, so you're going to do a bunch of speaking engagements. So, tell, just tell me a little bit about like how life has changed career wise. Like, did, because you probably never thought you were going to be doing what you do now <laughs> prior to this. So, just tell me a little bit about like what that's been like for you. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun. You know, I was um, my training college. I was a biomedical engineer. I worked in manufacturing for seven years. I worked in sales for 13. That's what I was doing on this trip, just a sales call in that industry. After this happened and I got diagnosed with PTSD, I took three months off. And then I went back part-time for about three years. And, you know, I got asked to speak the summer after the crash once, and it wasn't something I set out to do, but I spoke once and somebody told somebody and somebody told somebody else. And it's just sort of snowballed into this little mini career. And it's just, it's been great. And it's the perfect situation for me because if I never speak again, that's fine too. Um, but if people, you know, hear me and want to hear the story. And I think people, even though it's been 10 years, people can identify with being a passenger on a plane. Most of us have been on an airplane and we wondered, you know, it's, it might be a little harder to identify with being Sully, the guy flying the plane, but most people can just identify with being a mom on a business trip and people like to hear stories that they can identify with. So it is just this, it's, it's been a real blessing because I've met wonderful people, gone to a great, a lot of great places. And, and my takeaway is if there's one person in one of my audiences that takes something away and does something better with their life, maybe that's why I was a passenger on that plane. I'll never know, you know, why I happen to be one of the 155. Wow. That's awesome. So I would, I feel like I can't go to the, finish the interview without asking um, about, about Sully, Captain Sully. So tell me just a bit like, you know, a couple, couple quick things about him, what you've learned from him and just like how amazing of a guy he is. I don't know, whatever you, whatever you kind of want to say about him. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's one of those people. He has a very humble confidence about him. He, you know, you meet people in your life where they just sort of command your respect without trying, without demanding it. You just respect them. And he's he's that guy. I mean, he's a pilot's pilot. He loves aviation. He could fly a plane before he could drive a car legally. <laughs> um, he, you know, he didn't want to be considered a hero. His view was. I just did the job I was trained to do. That was my job and I was trained to do it and I did it. But he's being way too humble there because I've talked to many pilots over the years and most of us, most of them have told me that there's about 10 guys in the world that could have pulled off what he did. But I think part of it, part of the learning from me for Sully is just his confidence. You know, when he was interviewed by, I believe, Katie Couric and she asked him, did you think I could, you could do it? And he said, I knew I could do it. He knew he had the confidence. It was a dire situation over the most densely populated city in America, arguably. And here he's got, you know, a plane full of people with almost no airspeed, full of fuel. But he knew he could do it. So I think sometimes when life throws us the most adverse challenges, part of it is believing that you can do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like you can kind of hear that in his voice from like the different the real life audio and like from the movie is just like we're gonna be in the Hudson it wasn't like I th I th no. it wasn't like any there wasn't any kind of like quivering in his in his voice or any kind of like uh questioning about it. it's like this is kind of what's about to happen <laughs> and it's really funny if you listen all the way back at the very start of the air traffic control 
um, recordings, you know, Officer Skiles was flying the plane when we took off. So he says he made Sully famous because he flew him into the birds. <laughs> but <laughs> with the very, very start, when Skiles is flying the takeoff, you'll hear Sully say, what a beautiful view of the Hudson today. So it was almost as if that seed was planted. He had seen that river, that seed was planted. And then, you know, 15, 20 seconds later, he's having to decide that he's going to land that plane in that river. So it's, it's kind of weird how things like that, when you look back, how things like that work, work out. That's crazy. That's crazy. So you guys just had the, the 10 year anniversary, right? Like back in, back in February, was there any kind of common uh, conversation that kept coming up amongst you guys? Or like, what was the main talking point of everybody that met together for that 10 year anniversary? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've gotten together as passengers. There's there's some groups that get together every year in New York in January, but we've we've gotten together for sure at the one year, the three year, the five year, the ten year, and you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about that day as much as passengers. We spend more time talking about all the days since, the kids that have been born, the dogs that everybody's gotten, the graduations, the weddings, the grandbabies, the new jobs, the total change in life focus or career path, travel, bucket list items. That's what we spend most of our time talking about when we're together is everything since that day. That's awesome. I love that. So if you had to give advice to somebody, like this person has never gone through ever any like traumatic event like this before, but for whatever reason, they want advice on like how to deal with a life-threatening situation. Um, like, what advice would you give to? Let's let's. I'll phrase it this way to make it a little bit more um, understandable. I guess. What advice would you give to yourself before the flight? Now, knowing now what you know now, like just for just for the experience of the traumatic event in and of itself. Like, not for the afterwards, but what advice would you give yourself about the particular event? In that event? moment? Yes. Mm, probably I would have had on more functional shoes than what <laughs> I was wearing. I had on, like, you know, <laughs> boots with a big heel. And, yeah, I probably would have, you know, rather preferred to have on running shoes or waterproof boots, maybe. Um, a wetsuit, I would have been good. If I knew what was going to happen, I think I'd have dressed a little differently. But, uh, yeah, that's what, you know... It, statistically when people are in those situations, they say about 70% of people will stay calm and do what they need to do and not panic about 30% will panic. And that's kind of what we saw. But what was really interesting is for the 30% that panicked or became really one of those 70% shepherd them care, you know, carried them on out, helped them. So um, I happened to be, I think in the category of than a non-panicker, you know, like I became really clear on, I got to get out of here. Um, you know, my, my little sister says, God put the right sister on the plane. She said, I'd have been one of the ones that lost my mind. But I think just trying to stay as calm as you can and think as clearly as you can, but different shoes for sure. That's <laughs> it's pretty funny. That's why you uh, initially go to. That's funny. So before I ask the last question, Valley, I want to acknowledge you. I think that it's First off, that is cool that you were in one of the seventy percent who would kind of be able to, you know, relatively stay relaxed. And I, I think that it's that it's cool that you were thinking about the you were forward thinking about the things that you were going to be able to miss. Um, I, that wasn't necessarily something that you like. I chose to think in the future. It's just something that came to you, and I think that's really cool. Um, and then now, how you're wanting to 
kind of give back and communicate the message to people who have, especially, you know, I think giving the message to people who have gone through traumatic events that it's okay to like go out and seek help. Like that you get something that you need to do because you never know when it's going to come back to you at other periods of your life. And I think that's awesome for you to be able to openly communicate that that's what you've gone through and that's what you struggled with. And that's how you've coped with it. You know, there's no shame in our struggle. One of my best moments after a talk I gave probably five or six years ago now, I had a six foot three Marine come up to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, thank you for for putting PTSD out there, making it a real thing that nobody needs to be ashamed of. And and that's one of those what I call well God wink, like, okay, keep speaking, Valley. If you know, just that's he's one of my ones that hopefully I helped him. Wow, that's so cool. That's so cool. So you you have your website, valleycollins.com. Well so if you wanna if anyone wants to book you or learn more about you, that's where they can go, right? Yep, there's a contact page on valleycollins.com, V-A-L-L-I-E-C-O-L-L-I-N-S. Yeah, just hit me up, send me an email, and we'll go from there. All right, awesome. Very good. Well, I always ask the the last question to everybody on the show. So the podcast that like we talked beforehand is called The Best You Podcast, and I believe that everybody's on the constant journey of becoming the best version of yourself. Sure. Uh, and that I also believe it's a very unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to become the best version of myself is going to be different than the way that you become the best version of yourself. And so what I want to ask for you personally is if you could currently work on or do three things to get closer to that best Valley Collins that you can be, what are those three things that you could currently do or three things that you could currently work on? I think the one thing that I could work on that I'm not very good at at all is just being still. Taking time to just be still a little bit every day, whether that's whatever that is for you, if it's meditating or praying or just just be still. Our lives are so busy and we're inundated with so much information all the time. So that's something I always want to work on. I can always eat healthier. That would be my, my second one. I don't love broccoli or cauliflower or radishes. You know, I would rather have McDonald's french fries. So um, always eating healthier is one for me. And just just loving more in the best way that I can. It's just, it's just being gentle, as gentle and kind and loving. Um, I always say, you know, I want to be a friend a friend wants to have. I want to be a mom that my, my kids want to have. And that's just a daily struggle and some, something I can always work, work better at. Wow. Well, those are three great ones. I appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on, Valley. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good day. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, share it with one friend or family member. Just take the link from the podcast or text them, hey, check this out, nickcarrier.com slash podcast, and it'll take them right to the show. We want to spread this message. If you know anyone who has a traumatic experience and having a tough time bouncing back from it, if you know anyone who just loves an amazing story, send them this episode. Be the person who inspires a family member or friend today with Valley's storytelling capabilities and infectious, passionate energy. To learn more about Valley, you can find her on Instagram at Valley Collins, V-A-L-L-I-E-C-O-L-L-I-N-S, and you can check out her website, www.valleycollins.com, to book her for your next speaking engagement. She does an incredible job of relating with everyone, finding humor in her story, and spreading love and inspiration. And before you leave, don't forget to rate and review the show to tell me what your favorite part was. That's going to be the best way for you to support this podcast and help spread it to more and more people so we can all work together to get closer to our best selves. 
Remember, if you went through a tough experience and you're not bouncing back like you thought, that's okay, you're not alone. Reach out to someone for help and assistance, someone to talk to and share with what you're going through. Be grateful for everything that you have in your life today because you never know when you're gonna take that last breath or send that last text message. If you're having a tough time in a relationship with a friend or family member, reach out to them. Let them know you're thinking about them and that you want to find a way to patch it back up because you never know when you just might not get that opportunity again. I hope you guys loved the episode. I was moved so much by Valley's story. There were times when I was literally just left speechless and I'm sure it was the same for you. Utilize the inspiration she has just provided with you to take action on a certain area of your life that you know you can improve in. For now, you know what time it is. It's time to go out and upgrade yourself today to get closer and closer to your best you.